<clears throat> so as was mentioned, uh, Mark mentioned it earlier, today is Palm Sunday. And so uh, for the next two Sundays, so today and next Sunday, and of course during Good Friday, we're actually going to take a break from our Sermon on the Mount series. We'll, we'll return to that in a little bit. But we're going to focus our attention on this story uh, that we just read, which comes right after Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. So Mark mentioned this just a couple of minutes ago about how Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem and people were waving palm branches and they were praising God and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were throwing their, their coats down on the road for him because this is how you would uh, meet a conquering king coming back into the city that they ruled. That was the, the context in which this was happening. Now, that's exactly who Jesus is. He's a king. We've been talking about this kingdom of God that he uh, has established for, for a number of weeks as we've been looking in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is indeed a king, and he is indeed a conquering king, but he's a different kind of conquering king than the, the kind that the people expected. He comes riding in on a donkey, not on a, a war horse. He's not there to, to do violence and bring war. He is there to bring peace. That was the symbol being described or being made. That was the point being made by the symbol of him riding in on a donkey. Now, what we're looking at is this story afterwards where Jesus doesn't seem to demonstrate his authority as a king from a very peaceful perspective. In fact, he seems to demonstrate that he is a violent man and that he can get very angry. It's a start, excuse me, it's a startling display, really, if you think about it. Is, is Jesus just kind of like losing it? Is he, uh, you know, lacking sleep and therefore he's uh, having a hard time regulating his emotions or something? What on earth is going on here? Why is this king who comes in promising peace now expressing his authority in such a, a violent, kind of aggressive way? Well, that's what we're going to look at together for a few minutes this morning. We're going to see how Jesus expresses his authority as the, the king we're looking for in judgment, in teaching, and then finally in submission. So, Jesus expresses his authority in judgment, in teaching, and in submission. First of all, in judgment. This is not Jesus meek and mild, the way we're used to seeing him depicted in our picture Bibles, right? You know, with Jesus sitting on the, on the stump or something or on a rock with the little children coming up and he's bouncing them on the knees and tickling them and smiling and all that kind of stuff. That's not the Jesus we get here. This is, this is the Jesus of verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. Now look at He looked around at everything, but since it was already late... He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus comes into the temple. He has a look at everything. And he does not like what he sees. Because the next time he comes back, he's violent. And we're going to see what that looks like. But first we have to deal with this, this, this story of the fig tree. Because it says in verse 12 that the next day, <clears throat> he goes from Bethany back to Jerusalem and as he's walking along he sees this this fig tree and this fig tree's it's in leaf but he doesn't see any fruit on it and he curses this thing and he basically uh, condemns it to be to die <laughs> 
And you wonder to yourself, is Jesus like in a bad mood? Um, why is he so angry at this tree? I mean, it's the springtime and these trees were just coming into leaf and they were just coming out of their dormant season and so it's the wrong time to be looking for figs anyway and yet Jesus seems to be so angry at this thing for not having figs. What on earth is going on? Well, you got to remember, he was just yesterday looking at the temple, seeing something he didn't like. And so today, he's on his way to the temple, but he pauses at this fig tree after having mulled over all night long this thing that's got him so ticked off, he pauses to to give an object lesson to his disciples. As I mentioned, it's springtime, and so the leaves are out on the tree, but there are no figs. But there are these, there's supposed to be these little nodules that, that give evidence of the fact that figs are coming. So, so they're the early starting signs of fruit about to be born. And they're supposed to be pretty tasty. So you can pop off a few off a tree once in a while and, and eat them. But they're not there. So this indicates to Jesus this tree is diseased. It is dying. And therefore, he judges it. Now why? This is a parable, friends. This is an object lesson about religiosity. Jesus is looking at this so-called lively place, the temple. And he's saying, I don't see any actual fruit. And that's a problem. See, religiosity, it really looks good on the outside, okay? You see the nice leaves, and of course a tree needs leaves to, to grow, and, and, and so it's important to have these, these leaves, of course, but, but if there's nothing more than the leaves, there's a problem. Then there's a problem with the, the purpose for which the fig tree exists, and that is to produce fruit. Fruit is meant to be... Uh, uh, Fruit exists to reproduce the tree and fruit exists for the enjoyment of things outside of the tree. The leaves are for the tree's nourishment. The fruit is for the nourishment of others. Do you understand? And so what Jesus is saying is is that he's, he's gone to the temple and he saw a lot of religiosity, but he hasn't seen much spirituality there. He sees a lot of activity. There's a lot of action going on, but he doesn't see fruit Because you see, all this activity is happening in a particular court. It's happening in the Gentile court, okay? The temple had four courts. It had the Gentile court, then inside of that. It had the women's court, then inside of that. It had the men's court, and then inside of that. It had the court of priests, and you can tell who's allowed in which court, right? And the Gentile court had become the place where, where all this religiosity was happening. But you see, none of that religiosity was for the Gentiles themselves because the Gentiles didn't come and sacrifice. The Gentiles weren't the one who were carrying in their lambs and their doves and all this kind of stuff to sacrifice to get close to God. They were the ones who were at a distance trying to understand what this Jewish religion was all about and, and who this God Yahweh was all about. But you see, the Jews, they had turned this whole thing into a thing that was just for themselves. Their whole court was being filled up by stalls and, and butcher shops and money changers and all this stuff to facilitate their own religious activity. It had nothing to do with the Gentiles. They had blotted out the light that was supposed to shine for the Gentiles, you see. And that makes Jesus extremely angry. What's, what's the lesson here? 
It's a pretty clear lesson, friends, and it's a pretty obvious one, and it's something that we should hold on to and remember, and it's this. Is our church busy? Every time I look at that bulletin, I just shake my head. I say, my, my goodness, I can't keep it all straight. There's so many sign-up sheets, it drives me crazy. And you probably are feeling the same way too. There's a lot of activity going on, sure. That's fine, that's wonderful. Being a busy church, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but, if it's just for us, if we have activities and if we have programs and if we're running ministries and it's all about us feeling good, feeling like we're, we're doing stuff for the Lord or feeling like we're learning stuff about the Bible and feeling like we're having great community with one another, if it's simply about us, it's just leaves. It's just leaves. If it doesn't benefit others, if it doesn't have any connection in any way to actually bringing the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to this community or to our neighborhoods, it's not fruit. It's just leaves. It's just for show. Activity, friends, a busy church with lots of activities does not equal fruit. That's a warning for us to remember that. To always keep in mind that what Jesus designed the church to be was an embassy of his kingdom in this world that is hurting, that is lost, that is in desperate need, not just of your hands and your your money and your service, but of your story. The story of how Jesus came into your world and broke through the darkness and broke through the the, the lostness and broke through the self-centeredness and he opened your eyes to see that you had been living life as a fool and living a life as 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 a person dedicated to one thing and one thing only, yourself. And everything you did had some way of being about you. And you realized that and you saw your need to be turned around and changed and you gave yourself to Jesus and you said, I I believe in you and I trust in you and now my, my slate has been cleaned by your death and resurrection and I live a different life. That's your story that the world needs to hear. How did you fix your marriage? Jesus. How did you overcome your addiction? Jesus. How did you deal with this? What is it called? Well, the Germans call it angst. This underlying sense that life is meaningless. There's no point to it. You have a little fun when you get a little drunk or you get a little high or you have a little sex or you make a little money or you buy another toy and it feels good for a while but then that dissatisfaction starts to creep back in and you live with this belief that it's all just meaningless but you don't live that way. You don't get up every day chasing a little bit of this or a little bit of that just to give you a shot of pleasure. You have this weird contentment, this weird satisfaction, this weird joy that no amount of suffering can take away. That's your story. That's what they need. So Jesus goes to the temple 
and he goes to the center of church life. And what does he see? Now, you got to understand, during Passover, at this time in history, so this is around ballpark 30 AD-ish, at this time in history, Jerusalem would swell to 10 times its normal population during Passover. And so you needed a lot of money and you needed a lot of livestock in order to practice the, the, the rituals of the Passover week. One uh, historian said that as many as 250,000 lambs were slaughtered during Passover in the city of Jerusalem. The river, I mean, the, the, the streets, they ran like rivers of blood. It stank too. <laughs> now, they used to do business, the business of, because of, you, you travel, right? You travel and you can't bring your lamb, but you got a few coins and so you buy your lamb in Jerusalem. And they used to do this business on the Mount of Olives, which was over here. Then you had a valley, the Valley of Kidron. And then you had the Temple Mount, where the temple actually was. So all that business was done over there. And the Sanhedrin, which was the, 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 the religious council in charge of the Jewish faith at this time, they kind of ran this this business. By the time of Jesus Christ, as I said, this business had moved to the Gentile courts within the temple. It's a huge court, but Caiaphas, the high priest, because it was only a high priest who could allow it to happen, he decided that it would be better and more efficient, and we could probably make a little more money if we did this right here in the Gentile courts. And so Jesus sees all these stalls, like I said, and shoppers and, and, and stuff, and, and, and this place is a madhouse, okay? Lots of activity, but not very spiritual, just religious. For example, there was no prayer at all going on. And so here, like I said before, the Jews had shut out the light of God's grace to the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles come there and they, they don't understand what's going on. They see all this hustle and bustle and all this madness and, and, and they don't understand. And, and Caiaphas and the Jews, they had shut out the light. And so that's why Jesus gets violent. This is the only place, by the way, in the New Testament where Jesus gets violent. It's intentional. He comes in there and he starts kicking down tables and he starts chasing out the money changers. Look at verse 15. Uh, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. I don't know, people are lined up at a stall and Jesus comes and with a, with a, 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 a um, he makes a little makeshift whip and he starts whipping at people and he starts, get out of here! And he starts kicking over the tables. It says here, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And I don't know if you can picture these crates of doves, you know, falling on the floor and they break open and now you got doves running around like, mm, 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 mm. that's more like pigeons, but it's the same idea. And, and they're running all over the place, people trying to catch them and pick them up and, and, and it's just a madhouse. It's a zoo. Now think about it. What makes Jesus do that? It was his church losing its mission and its vision. And its purpose. Jesus will judge the church if the church loses sight of its vision and its mission, of its purpose. What is the purpose of the church? To be the light, right? To be the light in the darkness of the world. To be the salt, as we looked in the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago. The salt of the earth. Okay. Well, what kind of place was this supposed to be? That leads to point two. Jesus teaches. Now, in verse 17, it says this. 
And as he taught them, so, so verse 16 says, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be a house for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, it says that Jesus taught them. So when he's done flipping out on them, okay, in all likelihood, he sat down, you know, he's breathing, catches his breath, pulls out his hanky, wipes his brow, and he says, all right, let me explain what's going on here. He's not teaching them while he's driving them out. Let me tell you what this is supposed to be about. That's not how it worked. Jesus sat down and probably taught them for a long time and explained a lot of things to them. But Mark gives us the essence of his teaching in verse 17 when Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's a quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. And in Isaiah, we read that God was very angry with the people of Israel because they had lost their delight in worship. They had lost their, their delight in being in God's presence and, and, and spending time hearing his word and offering up their, their, their praise in song and in sacrifice. It had just become kind of a, a thing that they did. And Jesus, a, a, it was a place where they bought and sold and did business. And Jesus is applying God's anger to his own anger in that moment and to us right now. And what does he teach them? He says, first of all, this is my house. The church belongs to me. That's a good reminder for us. I planted Grace Valley Church seven years ago with a bunch of you guys. So we planted Grace Valley Church seven years ago. We had a capital campaign recently so that we could buy this property. Some of you put down big chunks of money for that so that we could buy this beautiful space to do ministry from. Some of you have been involved in ministry since the very beginning. You've put blood, sweat, and tears in all kinds of stuff. When we did prayer walks around town, when we, when we first got our, our space uh, uh, on the street and we would hold uh, events there for people in the neighborhood and we would open it up for cactus festival and you sit there in the hot hot sun trying to uh, engage people in conversation while they went into your nice building and it's air conditioning oh, I mean that's not that big a suffering but look we can say, look, I've, I've done this here and I, could, I, I, I am part of this community and I have a sense of ownership of it and therefore I want to make demands. You know, I love telling people, um, I, I left my old church to plant a church partly because I thought I wanted to do church in a bit of a different way. And so you could say, you know, you're trying to, trying to, trying to get your own church. No church is perfect, but at least you're going to get one that's like the one you want. I still don't have the church I want. Like, don't take that as a, as a slam on any of you people, okay? What I mean is, this church grew and developed and became what it is, and it's wonderful and it's beautiful, and I'm thankful for it. But it wasn't exactly my, my vision. Like, this isn't exactly how I thought everything was going to go. And I could resent that. Lord, I, I left a, a, a perfectly good situation to start a new church, and now I end up with a church that's not what I was looking for. What arrogance that would be. 
Or you come into worship and you've been here for a number of years and you have given big bucks to things like capital campaigns and stuff and you say, you know, I don't like the way they do baptism there with that goofy little bowl or something. Like, can't they do something better than that? Yes, hopefully someday we will do better than that, I promise. But this is what we got right now. And, and, and you can say, well, that's not how I want things to be. Some, some, some of you folks are newer to this community. It's a pretty new community to, be a big, to begin with, but some of you are, are quite new to this community, and you do it too. Because when I talk to you, they say, oh, your church this, and oh, your church that, and you guys do X, and you guys do that. And I want you to start just saying either nothing about that or start saying we do that, somehow acknowledging that this is not your church, this is not my church, this is Christ's church. And if you are a lover of Jesus Christ and you're attending here, you're part of the we too. This is the real we movement. But it's more than that even, okay? Because the culture wants to speak into the church and say, we want the church to be what we want it to be too. We want you to have certain beliefs and we don't want you to have other certain beliefs. We want you to have certain activities that we will bless and we appreciate. We love tax clinics, but we don't want to see you guys start like, you know, trying to evangelize people and tell them that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Because that's close-minded. Because that's bigoted. This is a big world with a lot of different views about things. And for you guys to, to, to stand there and say that you've got the way, we don't find that particularly uh, enticing or attractive or good for society. And so the church gets pressure not just from within to be a certain way, but from without to be a certain way. But you know what charms Jesus, really? When a church makes it her mission to glorify God and make much of Jesus... This is my house, Jesus says. It's not Paul's house. It's not the Sessions house. It's my house. What else does he say? Well, he says, this is my house and it's a a house of prayer. What does he mean by that? He's not saying that other things are pointless. Other ministries don't matter. They're all good. But what are those ministries for? See, Jesus is saying when he says... My house is to be a house of prayer. What he's saying is, is that, that all of the church and every aspect of the life of the church is meant to foster intimacy with God. Relationship with Jesus. Because that's essentially what prayer is. Prayer is a means by which we commune, commune with him. A means by which we know him. The means by which we open ourselves up to him and share what's going on in our hearts and our minds with him. And, and, and in prayer, we find this intimacy. And, and through prayer, what happens is, is we become changed more and more like Jesus. Because you see, when you pray according to Jesus' way, he describes it in the, in the, in the Lord's Prayer that he taught his disciples. When you pray that way, you find that your heart starts to get shaped to have the same priorities and wants and needs that your Savior has. The things that matter to Jesus are now the things that matter to you. 
Jesus says when he starts his prayer, he says, Our Father who art in heaven. What does that mean? The first thing he wants us to acknowledge in our prayer is that God is not this this disembodied, this, this, this impersonal, this angry being way up there who is looking down on the earth like, like Zeus with a thunderbolt ready to smoke anybody who doesn't go the way he wants them to go. No, we're supposed to look at him as a father. A good, good father. A God who who cares deeply about your life. A God who cares so much about you that he he is intimately concerned about what's going on in your world. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And then it says, hallowed be your name. Be supreme in my life, O God. My prayer is, is that I would see your value as what it truly is. I was trying to explain this to my catechism class this morning. When you read the words, glorify the Lord with me, what the psalmist is saying is, recognize the supreme worth and value of God the way I do. Our problem as sinners is, is that we value things that are not really that valuable, and we don't value the things that are very valuable, and the thing that is most valuable is actually God himself, and we don't have much of an interest in him at all. So when we call call on God, hallowed be your name, please, Lord, make you be the thing that matters most to me. And then what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just locally, it means we long for a church to be a place where the kingdom of God materializes in concrete obvious ways. If you're a guest here and you don't know Jesus very much at all, maybe you only know about him but you don't know him, I hope and pray that if you hang out with us just a little while, that you'll start to say to yourself, there's something going on here that I don't quite get because I can't go to any other group, community, organization, service body, whatever, where I just find so much love and joy and kindness and gentleness and selflessness. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And what's the purpose? Well, Jesus says it. He says, this will be a house of prayer for all nations. The church exists to shine the light of Christ to all nations. As I said, Jesus is angry because the Jews have blocked the Gentiles. They, imagine if you're a Gentile and you're learning, just learning about this God. And you walk into the court and you see this weird marketplace. And none of it makes sense to you. And you're, nobody's introducing you to God. All you hear is the bleeding of the sheep and the, the babbling of people going back and forth. Have you ever seen the New York Stock Exchange like on the floor where these guys are... Bye, bye, sell, sell, blah, blah, blah. It's completely meaningless to people who don't know anything. And now add livestock to that. And that's what these Gentiles are encountering when they go in there. And this makes Jesus fume because the Jews, they didn't care about the Gentiles. They didn't care about those among them that didn't really understand who God was. They were, the church is supposed to be a community that cares for its non-members a lot. So when you come here, when you come to church, who are you coming to see? 
you're probably coming to see some of the friends that you know and you haven't seen for a week and you'd like to touch base with them. That's fine. But what about, what about looking for someone new? Someone who's standing in the hallway going, uh, where am I supposed to go? Nobody's telling me where I'm supposed to go. How about you say hello? You look like you could use a hand. I'd love to help out. Or you see someone in the pew that's new to you and you don't recognize them. You say, hey, are you new? And they say, no, I've been here for a year and a half. Well, you're new to me. Want to grab a coffee? Oh, hey, you don't know about Grace Kids? Oh, Grace Kids happens down over there. You've got to uh, register your kid. I can help you through that. Follow me. Let's go. Last point. Yeah, so Jesus taught. Jesus judged. But Jesus also rules through submission. And this is verse 18. It says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, what this means is, is the leadership knew what Jesus meant. He's overturning the tables. They come to him and they say, what are you doing? Dude, you've lost your mind. And he says, no. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And you have made it into a den of robbers. And he, they know it. But here's the thing. They're shocked because they knew the Messiah was supposed to come to clean, cleanse the temple. But they thought the Messiah was going to come and cleanse the temple of foreigners, not for foreigners. And not only does he do that, but when he throws over those tables, he's not just throwing over the, the carelessness of the Jewish people. He's overthrowing their entire sacrificial system because he's saying to them, look, Gentiles, they can come in. The people who don't know, the vast unwashed, who are not like you, they are allowed to come into the presence of God and commune with the Almighty. How? Because I will be killed as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. All these lambs that are getting slaughtered at Passover, we're talking, they're not to be too gory, but you got to know what's going on. Their throats are being slit, and it's their carotid artery or the big vein, whatever they have here that's being split, split, slit, and the heart keeps beating for a bit, and you tip it over to get the blood to gush out. And the reason that some maybe 250,000 of these things are getting killed over and over and over and over again, it was reminding the Jews, listen, God will judge sin. You cannot just go into God any old way. There's a barrier between you and Him, and God has to judge sinfulness. Any of you who have been hurt deeply in your life, like really, really deeply, you know if you've been wronged deeply, you know, you get that. You can't just have somebody say to you, hey, can we just get over this? You can't just let it go. It's not that simple. That's an injustice. And our crime is that we rebelled against our loving creator. We left his temple. And we centered our lives elsewhere. We centered it on amassing money, on finding occasional Joys, joys through relationships that were unhealthy or through addictions or through simple uh, uh, sexual uh, proclivities or whatever. 
And the Jews were doing the same thing, and God calls them on it, and they hate him for it. And they hate him so much that they say, we got to kill this guy. Saying we're out of sorts, and the Gentiles are allowed in, they plot to kill him. And once they get their hands on him, they nail him to that piece of wood. But here's the thing, he let them do it. He let them do it. His enemies. He knew their plots against him. He knew, he knew the timing of it. He knew the place where it was going to happen. We're going to see a little bit more of that next week or on Good Friday. He knew all of it. None of this is a surprise to him. And what does he do? He takes it. The king, the king with all authority to judge, with all authority to teach, now lays down his authority and submits to punishment. What a king. Because in the end, he doesn't say to you and say to me, look, you guys have turned my church into a a disaster zone. It's all about you. You're not thinking about me. I am done with you people. I am out of here. I'm going to go pick up my my cross and I'm going to take it down the street and I'll plant it over there instead. No, what does he say? He says, I am committed to you like I was committed to that little boy who was baptized just minutes ago. I am so committed to you. I am so committed to you. I am so committed to you that I will actually allow my perfect son to take the wrath and the justice of my righteous anger against you on his shoulders instead of making you wear them. And then I will hold that cross before your eyes so that as you hear and as you see that I love you with more love than you will ever, ever be able to even bear because it is so pure, because it is so infinite, because it is a washing over you time and time again. I will break your hard heart with my love so that you can turn around and with a smile on your face say, yes, 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 my Lord and my King. I've rebelled against you. I have wronged you. I have sinned against you. I have hurt you. I have angered you. And I see it for what it is. But I also see you for what you are infinitely, unswervingly in love with me despite it all. And though I may never really completely understand it, I receive it with thanksgiving and I cling to it with everything. Our king is a king like no other king. Rejoice. As we just sung, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at you, our king, who points out our sin, who shows us our shortcomings, but then in the end, rather than turn your back on us, You take the perfect lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, and you allow his throat to be slit for us so that we can know you will never, ever, ever let us go 
but rather you will hold on to us for all time. And we look forward to that day, Father, where we get to see Jesus in that new heavens and the new earth and we get to face to face look him in the eye and thank him for his willingness to die for us. And, and maybe in times like this, Lord, we feel a little impatient. Oh, how our hearts long to be able to do that. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. So that we can look, at, look you in the eye and take our turn to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all you are and all you've done for us. Amen.